invite you now to turn with me into John, Gospel of John. We'll read chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Perhaps we'll start with 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Our sermon today, Is it possible to teach an old saint anything new? By our pastor. Well, what do you think? Is it possible? <laughs> I'd like to have you have seen the, um, the, uh, the PowerPoint because there are several pictures here of Jesus and Nicodemus, these paintings of the two of them. If you have your Bibles open, leave them open to John chapters 2 and 3, the last part of John uh, 2 and the first part of John 3. I forgot to bring my glasses too today. I've heard these kind of things happen when you get old. No, no, I'm gonna, I got, look at it, I printed it in large type, so it's only the Bible that gives me trouble here. Okay, so, <clears throat> first I want to give you a little chronology, so you know where this is all placed. We're going through the story of, of the Gospel of John all through this year, and um, finding what John's basic concern was, because all of these stories were handpicked by John for a specific purpose, and what was that purpose? To do what? No, yes, but that's not the reason he said. So that we might have faith. These are handpicked to build faith. And so he tells the stories with that in mind. And as you read through it, keep that in mind. In the first six months of Jesus' ministry took place between the autumn of A.D. 27 and the spring of 28, six months' time. Now, just to give you the difference between the synoptics, you know what the synoptics are? Matthew, Mark, Luke. Synoptics mean they're pretty much the same. When, what you read in one, you oftentimes read in the other. Synoptics. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the same. And in the first six months, the synoptics tell us these stories. They tell us about the ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, and the temptation. That's their first six months. That's what they cover. John... Uh, talks about being quizzed by the Jews, who he was, who Jesus was, the call of the first disciples, the wedding feast at Cana, and the Passover. Now, several of those things are totally left out in the synoptics. And so, you wouldn't have them without uh, John telling us the story. And so, it just indicates again that John is carefully telling the story. We don't have any evidence of the uh, other synoptics of, you know, two festivals, uh, Passover visits with a cleansing, uh, neither does John have what the synoptics tell about the 
cleansing of the tabernacle at the end, the temple at the end. John's story is the cleansing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Do you see the differences? And without knowing that, you get a little confused and lost in all of this. But John is, of course, crafting his story. Now, another thing about the difference between John and the synoptics is the synoptics almost exclusively are telling the story of Jesus outside of Judea, in Galilee, and on the other side of the River Jordan. And so their story is almost exclusively, not totally, but almost exclusively outside of Judea. John is almost exclusively where? Yeah, you got it. You figured it out. Uh, and uh, there's only a few exceptions with John, and that is the wedding of Cana, which was in Galilee, the woman at the well, Sychar, and um, uh, uh, the nobleman's son, and the feeding of the 5,000, and the sermon on the bread of life. So, but rest of it is all taking place within Judea. And so you have that when you read it, keep that in mind. Now, <clears throat> in John chapter 2, and verses 13 through 17, you have your Bibles open to that. <clears throat> we read about a Passover visit. Jesus just simply said, after, you know, the uh, wedding feast and after being with the disciples a little while, it was time for the feast of Passover. And it was obligatory for every adult male, 19 and older, to go to the Passover if he was able to. And to the major feasts. Uh, <clears throat> if they were within 15 miles. The synoptics have Jesus only going at the end, as I tell you. But John has him actually attending at least three of the Passovers. John tells us that story. He also tells us that Jesus attended the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, the Feast of Dedication. Um, so he has him there. If you'll turn, hold your finger here and go back to Malachi. <clears throat> Malachi is, of course, the last book in the Old Testament. Do you have a Bible? If you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you, I think, that you can find. And you could look at it there. Malachi chapter 3 and 1, 2, 3, and 4. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now this is the way the Old Testament ended saying that the Lord will come to his temple. And where does Jesus go at the very first Passover when he starts his ministry? He goes to the temple. And uh, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so you can see, <clears throat> he is coming to the temple. Uh, Malachi said that that would happen. And, Judea, and Jesus felt called to go to the temple. About two and a quarter million attended the annual feasts in Jerusalem. Think about that number. How many people are there in this town? 50,000? Yeah. 5,000? And then the outlying areas, maybe 10,000, uh, 10, something like that? Yeah. Well, over in Willits, it's about five, and then another five in the outlying areas and so forth. So it's about 10, somewhere in there. We're talking about two and a quarter million people. Have any of you been to Jerusalem? Just try to picture all of those people just suddenly. We lived in Hawaii in a little tiny apartment when we were first married. And I think half of the world came through that apartment while we were there. Everybody wanted to come and visit. <laughs> they thought they were relatives. <laughs> they were absolutely sure. And they just didn't want to come to our apartment. They wanted to get in our little car and go to all the places that they wanted to see. Well, that's what it must have been like, you know, in Judea at the time of the Passover, when all the relatives came. <laughs> 
And, you know, it was, it, it was crowded, very crowded. And uh, <clears throat> now let me tell you about the Passover. You need to understand this in order to understand what's coming next in our story in John. Now they had to carry on a lot of sacrifices. Two and a half, two and a quarter million people, a lot of sacrifices. And um, a half shekel was about a day and a half's wage in that day. So you can calculate that, what that would be today if you were to convert that. And people came from all over the world uh, to go to the Passover, the then world. And they brought with them the coinage of where they were at. And they had to have an exchange system. In the ta- and, and there were money changers to accommodate that inside the, uh, the temple area where they could get their money exchanged. Uh, however, their uh, rates were phenomenal. Uh, equal to about a whole day's wage. Just to, That's something to think about. The money changers made about, listen to this, $38,000 a year. Well, that's probably not a correct fund to figure, but uh, that has to be more. And the temple, according, I did an exchange, you know, estimate, because they have these things on the computer that tell you, you know, whatever. And, and, and the temple made over $300,000 a year just on this exchange. So this is big business. I think that's a wrong figure on the money changers. It must have been more than that. When Crassus captured Jerusalem and raided the temple in 54 B.C., this is in B.C., he took over $10 million from the temple and didn't exhaust its funds at all. Don't think that the temple is small business. It's big business. And so you can get the feel just from the money changers that is taking place here of how much was involved in that. Now, um, go here next. Um, Now, I want to talk about the Sadducees, just for a minute so you understand. They were the aristocratic, elitist, upper social class in Judean society. They hobnobbed around with the very important people. That's the Sadducees. They operated the priests, and uh, they operated the temple. They were in charge of the temple. And they also were in charge of the affairs of the state of Israel um, as much as they could under the Roman rule. All Jews in the world were under their control through the Sanhedrin. Uh, They rejected anything not in the Torah. Only the Torah. What's the Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books. That's it. That was it. Old Testament? No. Just those, those books there. That's all the Sadducees believed in. It was their only law. And because of that, they rejected any afterlife. They rejected that the soul, uh, they said the soul is not immortal. And no rewards are penalties, no angels or demons. Anything supernatural was pretty much out of the picture. Got it? Sadducees. Do you find churches like that today? Uh, they're not the most popular churches in town. People want to believe in some afterlife, don't they? They want to believe in some supernatural. They want to believe there's a God out there. They want to believe that their prayers can be answered. The Sadducees had none of that to offer. Uh, God is not involved in our day-to-day living. It's all about keeping laws, keeping the laws in those five books. That's what it's all about for the Sadducees. Um... Now, when Jesus, as you read here in John, oh, let me get my back right here. Um, 
you read about this just before we were reading before. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen. This is 2.14. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out, the coins um, of the temple, the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a what? Yeah, yeah. You got that impression. You came into the temple compound through the court of the Gentiles. That's where all of this was at. Believe it or not, the cows, the sheep, all of the animals and all of the animal related stuff right there. All of the noises, it was like a barnyard. Court of the temple of the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles couldn't go any further than that. That's as far as they got to go. The Jews could go into the more inner sanctums where it was nicer and cleaner and quieter, you know, and more lovely. But the place for worship for the Gentiles, there with all of the animals. And so Jesus sees this and it's not a very attractive thing. And so Jesus comes in and responds by getting these cords and starts chasing all of these people away. He's chasing the whole economy of the Sadducees away. Is he making friends that day? All right. How could the Gentiles worship? It took 40 years uh, for the Grand Temple. It would be, in just 40 years, it would be gone. That's all the time left. And Jesus, member from Malachi, would come to the temple, and he, this was his time. He had only, as you would count up John's visits, only... At most, there were only four, but maybe just only three visits into Jerusalem and into that area. He had very little time to accomplish what he was going to do. Had to be now. First Enoch um, uh, predicted that the Messiah would restore the temple back to the glory of Solomon's day. And there were Jews that believed that book and believed that that was what he was going to do. In John chapter 2, verse 17 the disciples remembered what was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. And they certainly saw it when he was chasing out the money changers and the filthy cattle pins and all of the racketeering that was going on. Things that were keeping it from uh, experiencing God from happening. The, one of the other things I, I, di I didn't mention is that you had to have your sacrifices approved. They had to be labeled clean by the priests. And so the priests had to examine every sacrifice. They had pre-examined, <laughs> you know, like the car lot, where the, anyway, um, pre-examined uh, sac uh, sacrifices that you could buy. But if you bought the sacrifice inside uh, the temple area, one of them, the same, I think it was probably a, a, a cattle, $315, $17 outside. But 315 inside the temple area. A lot of racketeering going on. Now I want you to notice the, the strange thing about this. The Jews faithfully kept the Passover in keeping every shred, every iota, every suspected uncleanness out of their houses. They went through and even had their children snoop out all of the leaven out of the house. You remember this? It was a ceremony. It was something they all did. In their own homes, their own homes had to be absolutely clean. Put that picture of Passover next to the one I just described in the temple. 
This was God's house. Their house was faultless. You could eat off the floor, I suspect. But God's house, you wouldn't be caught dead doing that. And these were people, maybe it was because the Sadducees had no idea that God was ever involved in their lives. He was just so distant, abstract, he was nothing. I don't know what made it happen, but that was a strange comparison between the way they kept their houses clean and how God's house was gone neglected. Now what did driving these money changers and the cattle and, the, and, you know, and all of that, driving it out of the temple, what effect did that have upon the disciples? Imagine this, just six months before, or less than six months before, they were called and started to follow this man called Jesus. They only knew him for a short while. And now he takes them down to the very center of church life, among all the people who are the authorities and leaders of church life. And as soon as he steps into church life, the center of authority, what does he do? He attacks the church. Attacks the leaders of the church. Good. (laughs) Um, You know, and can you imagine the effect that that would have upon the disciples? I think the disciples were stunned and shocked without a doubt. Confused probably too. But then they saw the change that happened. And they now began to think. How would you adjust if everything you had been doing all of your life that you thought was perfectly all right, and somebody comes in who you do not know very well and starts changing everything big time? How would you react? The disciples were faced with that dilemma. Your reaction is pretty important. It determines whether or not you will be a follower of Jesus or not. Jesus doesn't always give you full explanations. How do you explain what he was trying to do? He just got the you know, length of cords and started acting. There was no explanation. Just drive them all out. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he's trying to cleanse the I think they believed that he was the Messiah. I don't think that was shaken from them. And they were still committed to following him. I think that was true. And the first thing he does is just embarrass them. That's it. And without any appeal to authority, he just simply does it. They were certainly afraid of the repercussions. Wouldn't you be? Those people had actually control, life and death, of what happened inside the temple area. And they were associated with Jesus. Their lives were in danger. They soon began to realize that. Oh, anyway. And then there's this passage in Psalm 69, uh, verse 9. And it's referred to here, the zeal for his house has consumed him. There are some things you do not do in stages. You just act. And it seems like worship is that important. You just act. It's in times of worship that our hearts are realigned the way they should be. And it's in times of worship where there should be so much peace and freedom in the time of worship that you can make the changes that God wants you to make and needs you to make. Only in a time of safety and peace can our lives be realigned and that's what Jesus was doing 
He was giving a chance for the house of God to accomplish what it was supposed to in um, changing people's lives. Jesus does change lives. God is in the business of doing that. Now, do you remember? Um, uh, They came to him and they said, in verse 18, the Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign? Does that make sense to you? Had they just seen a sign? (laughs) What sign? Now Jesus can do the most amazing signs and these people come up, well, what sign? And they did that repeatedly through the gospel. He does the most amazing things and they say, now show us a sign. Anyway, uh, what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered, and what was his sign? Destroy this temple and in three days, what? I will raise it up. And in Matthew, it says, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. In Stephen's trial, in Acts chapter 6, it says, We have heard him say to this, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses delivered to us. Did Jesus do that? Not the customs of Moses, but what they had made of them. In response to their demand uh, here, give us a sign, Jesus offered them this one, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made from it. This is what he said in Mark 14, 58, about the last time. Where at the end, the last Passover. So it was really clearly what Jesus was doing. He was cleaning up the house and establishing it back in the place that it should be and make it Christ-centered. Um, let me see. I've told you this before, but let me just tell you again. Herod, the architect of this temple, started building it in 19 BC. By AD 64, it was finally completed. Add 19 to 64, and minus one for the year that didn't count. Okay, that would be what, uh, 82 years, something like that, that uh, he was building? Tim, have you ever been involved in a campaign 82 years long? That's a big one. And that's a big, big temple too, right? And just uh, six years later, what happens to it after it was completed? It's leveled by the Romans. You know, people, religious people can spend an entire lifetime building stuff that's going to turn to rubble. What does Jesus do when he goes to the temple? He concentrates about what it really is all about and what's important. Okay, so now you have, you know, chapter 2, this confrontation. And it says here, and um, verse 22, And therefore, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Suddenly it came back into their mind about this confrontation in the tabernacle, in the temple. And now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his sign, which he was, signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part was what? Not entrusting himself to them. Because why? He knew them all. He knew what was on the inside. He was aware of that. He knew all men. 
And because he did not need any to bear witness concerning him, and he himself knew what was in man. And so Jesus knew that you don't talk to people. They're going to give you the wrong answers, you know. He pretty well has to change it himself and give them a whole new orientation. And that's how the next chapter begins. Because it says, now, now, there was a man of the Pharisees. That very night, temple was cleansed. That very night, one of the authorities named Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin, 70 members, the Supreme Court in the land for the Jews, all around the world, basically, they were the Supreme Court for the Jews. One of their delegation, a Pharisee, someone who took Scripture realistically, very seriously, including the oral law of the prophets, and um, was involved in kind of making out all kinds of rules as to how we should obey. Now, let me tell you about Pharisees. Pharisees are interesting people. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. There were no more than 6,000 Pharisees. They all became Pharisees by making a vow in front of three witnesses that they would spend all their lives observing every detail of scribal law. Scribal law, very few lawyers, scribal lawyers. And um, there's pretty good evidence to think that that guy that came and asked Jesus, um, what must I do? to inherit eternal life might have been one of those particular kinds of lawyers. Anyway, they studied the entire Old Testament so that they knew and were authorities on everything in the Old Testament. And as a result, as a result of that, we're getting feedback, aren't we? Am I electromagnetic? Can you hear me now? All right, good. Okay, good. All right. Um, these, these lawyers would then turn it over to the Pharisees and so forth who could then develop all kinds of rules. Here you have the laws. What, about, what do you do as a result of this law? You have all kinds of rules that come out of that, how to keep it, so that you don't come anywhere near breaking it. The scribes, Pharisees, defining the law, applying the law. That's what the Pharisees were all about. So they made a complete listing of everything that was good in life. And this was basically published in a book called the Mishnah. I think some of you have the Mishnah. Dean, do you have the Mishnah? You don't have the Mishnah? Interesting book to read. And it gives you a listing of all the laws. And so, for example, one of the laws, the fourth law in some canons here, is, is the, is the uh, Sabbath, right? If you were to go to the Mishnah, there's 24 chapters explaining the one law about Sabbath. 24 whole chapters explaining in detail what it means to not work. So generation after generation of these Pharisees went to work to try to figure out what is it mean, does it mean not work on the Sabbath. When the Jews, um, on their Sabbath services, they would always read from the Talmud. <clears throat> which were readings that came out of scribal rules put in the Mishnah and put down in the Talmud. And so the Talmud was kind of reminding them of how these rules were and how it relates to the law. And so they read those all the time. Now here are some of the rules that came out of the Sabbath. You've heard of some of them. Some of them may be new to you. To tie a knot is considered work. 
unless you tied it with one hand. And then it wasn't work. Um, um, uh, knots, which could be tied with one hand, were um, untied, tied and untied, were quite legal. Um, let's see. A woman may tie her, her, her hat and, uh, and, the, and, and her girdle, thankfully, and the straps of her shoes or sandals, and the skins of wine and oil without working. That's what they determined. Are you ladies got that down? But suppose a man wished to let down a bucket into the well. How do you do that without tying a knot? You can't do it. Except if the bucket, uh, see, he could not tie a rope and for, uh, for a knot on a rope was illegal on the Sabbath and if a man needed to draw water from a bucket at a deep well, he was not permitted to tie a rope. Um, and, but if he tied the rope to a woman's girdle, and then tied the girdle to the bucket, that was okay. He can get all the water he wanted. <laughs> These were serious people. <laughs> These were Pharisees. They took their religion really seriously. Now you tell me, have you ever met an Adventist that gets the crazy things like that once in a while? You know, on obedience and laws and things like that. Adventists can do some pretty exotic, crazy things too, can't we? In fact, all Christians do that. And that's what Nicodemus was. Ah, let me share. Can I tell you some more stupid things? Sabbath journeys. Uh, you, were no, you cannot go any place outside of your home on the seventh day. The Sabbath's journey was therefore limited to 2,000 cubits and 1,000 yards. It, you know. But if you went out, if you went out the day before and you put a rope across the street, then your house extended where that rope was at, and you can go now the Sabbath journey beyond that. And that was okay. Can you see how people thinking this way can reason themselves out of almost any kind of a difficulty by their creativity? And that's what was going on, and that's what Jesus was approaching and dealing with inside that temple that day. Now, another way you can do it is you could take a bag, a bag of food and you can march that bag of food out and you can set it down at the farthest limit of the, what was allowed for you to be from your home. Leave it there on Friday or earlier in the week and then you can take another bag, another Sabbath day's journey out, leave that bag and so you're building extensions onto your home which made it possible for you to make a long journey without violating the Sabbath. These were the kind of people that the Pharisees were, and this is what Jesus was trying to deal with them. This kind of religion, by the way, is not that unusual in today's world. You will find it all the time. We, we are getting to be a, a world that knows not how to have interpersonal relationship religion with God. It's all about crazy rules and regulations or a dismissal of rules entirely. And so here's this night meeting. After casting out all of that corruption inside the temple, Nicodemus, one of the 70, high court, supreme court of the land, he asked to meet with Jesus, and Jesus meets with him. 
And when he starts in his presentation, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, and he came to by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come down, come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, his cohorts in the temple said, show us a sign. Nicodemus says, I'm satisfied. You've got the signs. He's a lot better than his friends, right? You see that? He saw the signs, recognized them, accepted them, right? He's also saying some very nice things to a guy who has just attacked the temple. He said some nice things to him. And the case, that is, the case of the word that is used here shows that it's not about time, but it shows that Nicodemus was really wanting to make an honest attempt to learn truth. Now, he wanted to learn truth. Okay. Um, Now, I just said Jesus did not commit himself to these people because he knew what was in them. Did he commit himself to Nicodemus? Look at it. What did it say here? Hey, that's, that's a confrontation. That's just a confrontation. How are people going to be able to be on oneness with Jesus? How are they going to understand a word he says if all of their thinking is upside down? Jesus cannot commit to people that have no common ground, that don't have an even beginning ground to begin to function. They, they, they've got to at least accept the ability that they are wrong and he's right. They've got to have an open mind. You don't make room for Jesus in your life with all the other clutter around. Jesus just showed that in the temple. That stuff's got to go. So um, the rabbis had said that there were seven things that were hidden from human knowledge. The day that you die, the, depth, the day of judgment or the depths of judgment, one's reward, the time of the kingdom of the David would be restored, when the guilty kingdom of um, uh, Rome would be destroyed, And what was inside of another person? The rabbi said, you can't know that. Jesus, in his very first personal contact with Nicodemus, tells him what's wrong with him on the inside. Now, I want to ask you a question. How did Jesus do that? With God. Does Jesus do things that we can't do? Isn't the Holy Spirit sent to bring God's Spirit into our lives? You know what? I have become more and more convinced that God's people in the last days waiting for him to come are going to have a lot of skills like this. And it's not because of any wisdom on their part. It's just simply because they are now an unobstructed vessel. The Holy Spirit, who does know, can communicate to them. And that's the way Jesus did with Nicodemus. He just went right past all of his verbiage. He's not going to talk about it at all because Nicodemus had no capability of understanding a word he was going to say. And he sets the agenda. He goes right to the heart and he says, you must be what? You must be born again. Must be born again. He says this truly, truly. You know, and when you see words like that, you know what's coming because you've read them before and you know that Jesus is making a profound statement that is, it cannot be denied. It's a fact. Be watching for it. This is a fact. You must be born again. You cannot alter it. 
You must be born again. You don't get to where you need to be by making new laws, which is what the Pharisees always did. To taking these scribal laws and somehow making these silly little computations. What is it? How many Sabbath laws did they finally come up with? Over 600 and some odd? Yeah. You know, you don't get there by doing that. And then he says, you must be born again. Now this word born again, again, can mean either a second time, which is what he thought it was, or to have a complete new beginning. Just start your life all over again. Or be born from above. Nicodemus didn't know enough about second or third to even go there. He probably had never ever stopped to consider that. Born again. Born from above. From God. The problem with humanity is not that we do not know enough. It is because of who we are. God has to start by changing us. Ever talk to somebody who cannot change? Will not change? Why talk? Why talk? Right? That's what Jesus was coming up against. Now, this idea of new birth is nothing new. It, remember, it appeared in the Old Testament. Ezekiel talked about that. Stony hearts, hearts of flesh. That's a big change. Uh, and throughout the Gospel of John, we see plainly that John over and over and over again takes his readers to the heart. To him, believing is something happens in the heart. It's not something that you just think in here. It talks about a total, complete change. Um, so, wide enough, have a new heart, wide enough to see God. That's what God was after in Nicodemus. And remember, he says later on here, he says, uh, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 5. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, Nicodemus was sincere. He came to Jesus sincere. His whole life had been carefully constructed in every detail to take him in this direction. He saw something in Jesus that was so different than anything he had ever seen anybody else. He sought him out, wanted to know more, and he said, look, I'm willing to grant you that you are from God. I'm willing to give you that much. Jesus stopped him and said, you must be born again. All that you have done, all that you have spent all your energy, all of your life trying to do is getting you nowhere. You're running out of time. You've got to be born again. He wasn't able to hear that. But Jesus kept adding and telling him that you've got to be born again. Is it possible for an old saint to learn something new? Well, in Nicodemus's case, in Nicodemus's case, he thought about that. And he continued to think about that. And I think he probably followed the stories about Jesus as they kept flocking in. You remember, the Pharisees would send out investigators to dog Jesus and trail him. And they would come back with reports. And of course, he's on the Sanhedrin. 
He saw the whole development as Jesus did one thing after another after another in the confrontations and finally he knows the Sanhedrin has got to act. And he knows what they're going to do. They're going to take action to kill Jesus. And he's on that Sanhedrin. And he can't get this thought out of his mind, this night visit that he had with Jesus when Jesus stopped him and said, you've got to be changed from the bottom up, from the inside out. All this outside stuff's getting you nowhere. And then Jesus was put on the cross. And he couldn't get this out of his mind. And when Jesus died, who came forward? Two members of the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He had made up his mind. It took him three years. He was a careful man. Right? But he made up his mind in the right direction. Is it possible for an old saint to learn new tricks, new ideas, new thinking, new behavior? Yeah. With Nicodemus it was. And all the things that Nicodemus esteemed as being so important in his life were cast aside as an old man. And he launched out entirely in a new direction, following the spirit, following the heart. I don't know what happened to Nicodemus, but I think I know what will happen. Do you too? Can you imagine Jesus welcoming Nicodemus into the kingdom? Can you imagine that? And Joseph of Arimathea, when there were so many Jews who were on that Sanhedrin, so many Pharisees, 6,000, making a commitment, you know, to be true to all these laws that couldn't make those changes, wouldn't make those changes. Jesus reaching out and welcoming Nicodemus home. Joseph and Arimathea home. They had made the decision that there's nothing worth losing that for. They changed. And so Jesus did know the heart of that man. I think there is justified reason. You know, the story that comes out next in chapter 4 of John is about Jesus seeking out a Samaritan woman. We need to seek people out that are very important to us and have talks with them to make sure they understand these very important truths. So this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus is a powerful, powerful story about what God wants us to do in having similar conversations you know, to people that maybe just simply haven't got it yet and desperately need to have it. Thank you for being patient this morning with me. Forgot his glasses. Forgot the PowerPoint. I do have a bulletin, and it tells me that our closing hymn is number 567. Uh, Join me in standing, if you would.
Father, as we leave this house, may the thoughts that we have thought about stay in our hearts. May your Holy Spirit convict us in how to apply the message of today and the passage in Scripture today. The story of Nicodemus, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus talking to his disciples and all of the things that we heard about, the way people try to live their lives, the way we try have been trying to lead ours, and have we been trying too much on our own to do our own salvation, to make our own things secure rather than allowing you to rebuild us anew, to be born again. And if we have, may we make a decision right now and this week to stop and to give our hearts totally to you, to die so that we can be born again, so that you can have your way to make us into what we need to be. And may we tell others of that decision, if that's the case, or affirm that that decision is still ours and how wonderful our life has been because we've made that decision, how it's changed us. Help me as I try to reach out to my children and grandchildren and the people that I meet each day. Help us as we think about the Bible and the Bible stories, the terrible consequences of not talking and not telling what we've learned. Help us to apply this in our hearts and our lives, this message in Jesus' name, so that old saints can indeed learn new ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.